Welcome to the second season of Over to Europe. This podcast is produced by the community of Civica, the European University of Social Sciences. Civica unites eight leading European higher education institutions to create the next generation European university. One of the primary goals of Civica is to connect these eight universities to promote the exchange of knowledge and resources for the European common good. In the second season, we zoom into Civica's research focus areas. For Civica, research is one of the key instruments to achieve its long-term goal of creating shared European knowledge. Thanks to the newly launched project Civica Research, the Alliance will continue to deepen its collaborations in research around these major areas. We talk to researchers and faculty members from the eight Civica partner universities to bring you cutting-edge European research in social sciences. I'm your host Aniket Narawad, a first-year Master of Public Policy student at Hertie School, Berlin. Climate crisis is the biggest man-made threat to the existence of humanity today. The crisis needs our full attention and immediate action before we are out of options. The climate crisis is also one of the biggest challenges to policymakers, scientists, and political leaders. The crisis demands rapid implementation of effective policies on a global scale and asks for technological changes that will allow a swift transition to a greener economy. In this episode, we talk about different aspects of the crisis and how the EU is tackling it. To understand the climate crisis, the steps taken by the European Union to mitigate the crisis and the challenges in implementing these steps, I speak with Diana Urz-Osarz from the Central European University and Sebastian Levy from Hardy School. Professor Diana Urz-Osarz is a professor of environmental sciences and policy at the Central European University. She is also the vice chair of a working group in the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Dr. Sebastian Levy is a postdoctoral researcher at the Center for Sustainability of the Hertie School Berlin. Dr. Levy's research focuses on analyzing how political developments shape public preferences on climate policy. Let's start with the very first thing about climate crisis like it's a global crisis and different countries have contributed differently to the crisis so far industrial revolution has been not a starting point but like a point where everything accelerated carbon and uh, greenhouse gases professor diana would you like to talk about what is the contribution of europe to the overall crisis we we are seeing right now it's important to understand that carbon dioxide stays for a long time in the atmosphere. That's why historic emissions are so important, because the current level of warming, and in fact, even committed levels of warming, very much depend on not on our annual emissions or present emissions, but how much we have emitted so far. So in that regard, of course, the Industrial Revolution started in Europe and we have also in the EU 28, we have Eastern Europe with us. And we know that the former communist countries had among the highest per capita emissions uh, in the world for at least the, around the 1990s. So certainly one would think that Europe has a very high share of responsibility in climate change. But if we look at the numbers, it's actually not that bad. Altogether, the EU28, because this statistic uh, was still considering the 28 countries in the European Union, 22% of global cumulative emissions can be attributed to uh, EU. And if we take Europe in a broader sense, then we are talking about about 33% of global emissions. But this includes uh, all the way until Russia. 
Thank you very much. This gives an overview of the past, how we've come to the point of crisis and what is the role of Europe has been in this. Our 2016 Paris Climate Agreement also has been a landmark for the overall climate crisis. So Sebastian, would you like to talk about the Paris Climate Agreement briefly and tell us what the agreement is and what is the role it has and what kind of targets it has set, well, not just for Europe, but also for the overall world? And the problem with those agreements was that the international community didn't really follow through and it lacked effectiveness in reducing global emissions. So the Paris Agreement is the, if you want to understand it in this way, the most recent try to follow through with climate action globally. And it has two main important substantive points. And the first one being that it really sets formally a specific net zero target. So before the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change only specified to limit dangerous anthropogenic global warming and whereas the Paris Agreement is more specific about this and it sets a specific goal of limiting the global warming well below two degree by 2050. So this is, I think, the one of the most important points. And the other really important point is that it changes the structure of international climate politics. So before that, international climate politics try to function in a top-down format. So states try to get together, sit on a table and talk through, we have this common problem and how can we agree on a just solution and who has which responsibility and then we enforce that. And if somebody doesn't follow through, there will be sanctions or not sanctions, but we, we try to come up upfront with agreement that we really follow through. Then the Paris Agreement changes that. The Paris Agreement tries to move from a top-down to a bottom-up approach. And it says, okay, it's very difficult to really come up with specific decisions on what is a just agreement. So we really try to invite everybody to make a pledge. And then we try to review those pledges. And we hope that through a common dialogue, through a deliberation, we'll end up in a situation where we come together and at some point our pledge will be sufficient. I think these were uh, really excellent uh, points uh, of, of summary for the Paris Agreement. I would add one thing that I think it's really important, that what you see in the Paris Agreement is, first of all, it's uh, really a landmark, a historic landmark from the perspective that, uh, uh, for example, never before uh, in history were 140 heads of state under one roof. So that signals, and, and for the Paris Agreement this happened, so that signals that this was the first time when the word really recognized that this is a major crisis. In fact, this is perhaps one of the biggest crises ever facing uh, humanity. Um, the other thing where how it's really advanced is that before the Paris Agreement, scientists would not even dare muttering the word one and a half degrees. That was, if you were a scientist and tried modeling one and a half degrees or, or discuss that, you were kind of written off as kind of the tree hugger or, or the advocate and not a real scientist. Still, so here politics ran ahead of science and said, look, it doesn't matter if we have the science or this or not. We have to get, try to get down because simply that's what the word needs. So, and then ask the scientists to get, to put the science behind it. That's one really positive aspect of the Paris Agreement. But the problem with the Paris Agreement is then, is, is very well described by Sebastian, that um, it's a, because of the bottom-up approach, everybody just making their own voluntary commitment. In the end, if you add up all those commitments, the actual commitments had uh, were really far from the political ambition, which and both of these are in, in the Paris Agreement. So in the end, the Paris Agreement kind of enshrines this enormous uh, divide between the political wish and 
and the political reality. So anyway, I think these uh, are really important from my perspective from the Paris Agreement. Talking about Europe now, Professor uh, Diana, would you like to uh, talk about what has been the performance of Europe since 1990, at least, because uh, that's when the dialogue around climate crisis really started to get going until 2020, when you published a report about it. What what has happened in, in these years? There is a report saying 20% uh, reduction in more than 20% reduction in carbon and in greenhouse gases in, in the EU. Could you please talk about the performance of EU from 1990 to 2020? I think we can really state that the EU has been a global climate leader in this period because we've genuinely reduced our emissions significantly. We have, as you mentioned very well, more than 20%. If we look at the numbers, 24% reduction in our total greenhouse gas emissions as compared to 1990. At the same time, our GDP grew by 60%. So that's a very significant decoupling between emissions and well-being. So that's a major achievement. At the same time, it's really important to understand that this is not a universally shared achievement. For example, a lot of this reduction is actually due to the collapse of the East European economies and formerly very energy-intensive and greenhouse gas-intensive industries. So a lot of this reduction was in the eastern part of Europe, where also GDP collapsed. Nevertheless, still, if we put it uh, on the total, still, we have introduced many landmark legislation and different schemes to fight climate change and to reduce emissions. And these certainly have shown very important results. So many countries in the mostly on the Western part, have achieved emission reductions while really significantly increasing GDP. Although if we add our emissions that we export, then the story is a bit different because, of course, products that we import, mostly through these, we actually emit more than what we account for within the EU. If we account for these, then we still achieve some reduction, but the picture is not that rosy. And one more thing that I think is important to understand that within the population, this reduction has been very different. If we look at the poorest half of EU, they have uh, reduced their emissions about by one third per capita, and this is consumption-based emissions. Nevertheless, the top 1% actually increased their emissions by 7% in this period. So there is this major issue of justice that those who could actually do the most because they are the most capable, they have the most possibilities to act, they actually acted the least. In fact, they increased their emissions while the poorest actually bore the largest burden of this emissions reduction. Thank you very much. My next point is actually very much aligned to what you just suggested, the divide between who is taking the burden of the reduction of the carbon. Would you like to, again, Professor Diana, talk about the disparity in terms of countries? We have production powerhouses, which produce a lot of greenhouse gases. And there are countries like Portugal, which are not so much into production. Portugal has been doing much better in terms of reaching the targets than Germany has been reaching. Would you like to give us a like, brief overview about how the different countries in the EU are performing in terms of the carbon emission? Thank you. I'm afraid I don't know uh, these statistics all off the top of my head, but I think you very rightly pointed out that as some of those countries in the EU, which are perhaps the most committed to fighting climate change and the most vocal and are pushing for the strongest policies, actually they themselves at home have not been that successful in reducing emissions. For example, Austria is also among the countries where based on their GDP, based on the structure of the economy, they based on their geography, they certainly could have reduced emissions much more significantly, but the emissions 
cases have not been really reducing that much. And the same for Germany. Of course, there is to some extent the issue that some of these countries, for example, Germany relies very heavily on some industries that are among the biggest polluters, for example, internal combustion engine-based mobility. And also they had many coal power plants and coal mines and coal industry. So many countries still struggle with this schizophrenia that on one hand, the government does want to reduce emissions. Nevertheless, many of these industries form very important pillars of their economies. And of course, it's not very easy to simply kind of eliminate those industries and just to get rid of those industries, which otherwise are major employers, important taxpayers, and also form important uh, shares of the total national GDP. That's why on total, some of these countries are perhaps a bit more schizophrenic. On the other hand, countries, for example, like the UK or Denmark, they have been achieving very nice reductions, but perhaps Sebastian can also uh, give uh, some more or better details. No, I think this was a, this was a great introduction. Um, if we want to add something, I mean, you ask about the performance of specific states in climate change mitigation. And this performance is not as easy to assess because, as uh, Professor Diana already said, it's sometimes hard to detangle which percentage or which share of emission reduction is really due to climate policy and which is due to other economic or macroeconomic developments. So there are these two, two different categories that we can use to assess potential performance of states in terms of climate change mitigation. And the first one is of the stringency of the policies themselves. And here we see a big division among European countries where certain countries stick out. And these are mostly the Nordic countries who tend to have really high national carbon taxes. Also Switzerland has really high national carbon taxes. So the UK had also really high or at least a significant above average carbon minimum tax. Whereas most other countries were still part of the UATS but did not have additional carbon taxes. Other Nordic countries get also other important climate policies such as subsidies on electric vehicles really sometimes change their light duty vehicles fleet. So there's this position on uh, on policies, uh, whereas mostly the Nordic countries who perform well and other countries not so much. And if you look on the emission reduction, it's it's a bit similar, but not as clear. So for example, on the 2020 goals, most countries performed very well. Most countries in Europe met their 2020 goals, except a few. And um, I think um, Ireland was one of the few countries who didn't meet their goals, but many others did. Some of these countries who met their goals were only meeting them only to Corona, which is for example Germany, but uh, many other countries would have met their goals also without Corona. For the 2030 goals, it's a bit more complicated because so how do you assess 2030 goals or the performance towards 2030 goals? And here the European Union has a really nice regulation framework and it's called the Governance of Climate Action Regulation, where they demand that every state reports biannually and their, their targets and their policies. And then the European Union tries to assess on how well these countries perform towards meeting their targets. And 11 of 27 countries performed quite well. They have not received a recommendation to advance their policies, to strengthen their targets. As again, especially Nordic countries performed quite well. Sweden and Denmark performed best. But also Portugal and Spain were well on track. And then another couple of countries, I think seven, received recommendation to ratchet up their performance. And they did actually do so, such as Ireland, Greece or Austria. And then there were nine countries who received recommendation but not increased their, their performance afterwards. And these were 
countries like uh, Poland, Slovakia, Romania, Slovenia, but also Belgium or Malta. And this distinction between countries sometimes also reflects a more broader regional conflict or regional division in Europe on climate politics. And sometimes you could say that of Western countries, they tend to be sometimes more bushes on climate change. So the Nordic countries, UK, when it was still part of the EU, maybe France, and then countries who are most in Central Europe and Eastern Europe tend to have more problems in following up, following through ambitious climate policy for different kinds of reasons. Thank you very much. I think very interesting points and gives us overall overview about what is happening so far, at least until 2020. But also, you both mentioned the economic side of it, and it is necessary for us to consider the economic decoupling and what is the effect of it on the climate thing. You also mentioned that northwestern countries performing better because economically also they are much more stronger than the central and eastern countries. So there is also a relationship between that. But before we get into that economy and how do we sustain climate targets with economy, we so far have talked about uh, how. EU has performed and what steps EU has taken so far. The Green Deal has been a big step uh, in the recent policies of EU. Dr. Sebastian, would you like to talk about the Green Deal? Just give us a brief overview about what Green Deal is and what it is targeting in the coming years. I think this is a really important question for two reasons. First, because it's a major policy initiative and it's really substantively important. And it's also an important question because it's sometimes a bit hard to hard understand what the EU Green Deal is because it's such a big buzzword. But then if you only look on the policy document of the Green Deal, it's actually a really thin document. It's not a legislation by itself, but it's a more general idea, a transformative idea on where Europe plans to go. The European Green Deal was motivated partly because of uh, COVID-19 and the recovery phase that we're going to have. And to understand this further, it's, it's good to look back on other recovery phases that we have on prior economic crises. For example, after the last financial crisis, we had a bounce back that was really fossil fuel driven. We had a lot of uh, investments and subsidies on fossil fuel industries like the car industry. And all the fossil fuel reduction that we saw within the crisis that were due to the economic downturn, they bounced back dramatically. Europe now wants to avoid this. Europe wants now to have a recovery but is ecologically driven and use the economic stimulus that we're going to have to invest now to really advance green growth and to advance strategies to meet net zero. And there are two of the most important substantive points of the green recovery is the net zero goal. So this is the first time that Europe really agreed on a goal to become completely net zero, the first net zero regional continent in 2050. And Besides these 2050 net zero targets, they have also other targets, most importantly the at least minus 53% reduction 2030 compared to 1990 and also a commitment to then go into negative emissions beyond 2050. Because if we're going to be net zero in 2050, we may meet the two degree goal, it's unlikely, but we're not definitely not, not going to meet the 1.5 degree goal. So one idea is also that yes, we might overshoot, but then we have to go back and maybe move into negative emissions afterwards. Um, so this is, a, this, is a, this is a general goal. It's actually really ambitious because if you look on a 2030 degree of at least 55%, it's a ma massive uptake in ambition to the prior goal, which is only 40%. Um, so there are a lot of like substantive policy initiatives, a large economic stimulus package, a lot of like strengthening up of substantive policies that the EU now tries to implement and is now implementing and allocating to meet these really ambitious goals. 
Sorry, I just want again uh, to uh, compliment what Sebastian has said. One thing that I think it's important to note that it's not the entire European continent, it's just the EU. I was from former countries which were not in the EU. Very often we just tend to equate Europe with the EU, but there are many other countries in Europe which are not EU and they are also uh, certainly problematic or they are certainly also responsible for high share of emissions and there this is much uh, less of uh, a target. Thank you very much. Dr. Sebastian has given us an understanding of the Green Deal, which is quite important. Green Deal kind of pushes for the policies that, that is going to help us in taming the climate crisis. But part of its challenge is the energy transition. Professor Diana, what are the biggest challenges we are going to face? Because energy is key to the economic growth. Energy is key to the society we live in, the system we have built around us. And transitioning from that to a new way of functioning would be quite a challenge. What do you think about this challenge? absolutely the energy transition is the biggest challenge and within that there are many challenges. But let's first start with the good news or the good part of it. The really good news is that the major pillar of the energy transition, renewable energy, and within that especially uh, photovoltaic power has become significantly cheaper over the last couple of years and decades and significantly much more available and much more affordable and much more widespread in the EU, spurred by policies and actually we can thank a lot of this to Germany, their ambitious policies where they basically brought down the learning curve to the price of the photovoltaic power. But by now, it's really photovoltaic uh, energy is among the cheapest, or in many countries, it is the cheapest uh, form of new uh, energy if a country wants to establish new capacity. So that's really good news. The bad news is that we don't only use electricity in the EU, but we use a lot of other fuels. So what is really more challenging is transport. While we are quite successfully trying to shift from gasoline-based or oil-based mobility to electric mobility, this raises a lot of other questions. And I think in Europe, we are a little bit behind in this transition as compared to, for example, China or the US or Japan. So somehow our car industry and policies have been not as dynamic in this transition as would have really been needed for full climate neutrality by the middle of the century, since we know that car stocks take a while to turn over. We can't just tell everyone, you just throw your car away and suddenly invest into this very expensive technology uh, tomorrow. That's, that's not how it works. Uh, so that shows that we can't necessarily just switch the engine from one to the other. And also shifting all of European mobility to electricity will require an enormous increase in electric power capacity, clean to power capacity. And adding to it aviation, that's really even more problematic because, for example, just moving the UK aviation to electricity, if we had the technology, but now we don't, that would require more than the present installed electric capacity. Also in industry, there are many things where we want to shift to clean electricity. So suddenly we would have such an enormous demand on, on clean electricity that because photovoltaic power and renewables are usually distributed source of energy, this will require either a lot of land or we should be very careful or very smart to use a lot of our present infrastructure and integrate these uh, photovoltaic solutions into our present infrastructure to leave the land alone for other sources of energy, for example, biomass or just carbon capture and, of course, food production So and nature. So we need, as Sebastian mentioned very well, nature protection is also a very important part of the role of Green Deal. So we need the land for many other competitive purposes. So it's kind of a waste to use land for uh, for so much solar farms that has been a strong trend in the last couple of years. And another big challenge is heating. So many countries in Europe, half of all fine energy is presently used for heating and cooling. That also includes industrial heating.
heating and cooling, but still, that is currently not with electricity. So, yes, we could just shift to electricity, but again, that's a lot of electric energy need and a lot of change in technologies, which is very expensive. So there is a lot of discussion in what's the best way, but the best, in fact, is to go for net zero energy buildings, because by today we can do that. And by our research, we have shown, and we have a major review paper that came out a few months ago that showed that to buy today, net zero energy buildings are not only a technological reality in not only new build, but also in retrofits, but also in historic buildings and also in economic reality. So uh, this is um, this all payback. So that's really the future because there we don't put yet another burden where we need to produce a lot of new amounts of carbon-free energy, which is very difficult because we will need a lot of clean hydrogen for many industrial processes and certain end uses that we can't otherwise decarbonize. But that will also be very expensive infrastructure-wise and also that will be an expensive source of energy. So the bottom line is that there are solutions, but somehow all European countries have been very hesitant uh, to really go towards net zero energy buildings and why we have been very good at encouraging in general uh, nearly zero energy buildings, but they have been a good decline. But now we really have to go for zero rather than just re- reduce the, the energy consumption. And most countries are still really behind in this. So in, in summary, there are many challenges still in the energy transition, but also I think there are many promising uh, avenues where we are on the good track. Thank you very much. This is very helpful. You mentioned what's good happening what's, and what is not working out so far. And you also mentioned that investment that is needed to transition to an infrastructure. Otherwise, that investment could be, could have been used for economic growth, investment that could have been used for other things. Dr. Sebastian, would you like to talk about the technology we have today? Is it sufficient to reach the targets in the Green Deal? Do we need a technological revolution? Is it even feasible to have this ambitious goal with currently available technology and commitments? Yes, I can. I can certainly try to say something about this. Also, I think that uh, Professor Diana is, has probably more expertise on this. But I think regarding technology, it's important to understand that there are certain types of technology. For example, there's technology that's already market ready, such as solar PV and wind. It is still improving and still getting cheaper. It has, Diana has said, has already gotten cheaper by almost sometimes some technologies even nine percent per year. So sometimes we don't need super far technology from the future, but we need to use technology that we have now. For example, look at electric vehicles. So electric vehicles will probably one of the technologies that is most important for decarbonizing uh, the transport sector. And the problem is not to invent some new type of car, but really use the technology, construct the regulatory environment that makes this technology affordable for people and provide infrastructure for these people. And the same as for buildings as well. However, there are some areas where we still do not have sufficient technologies to make our living consistent with a net zero goal. And one of those types of living that we do now is this aviation, for example. So there are some technologies uh, for short-haul flights. So you can have a small plane of like where you carry 12 people from, from Berlin to Munich. This is possible. It's a bit more expensive, but it's possible. But as I'm aware of, there's no technology where we can fit 200 people that we fly from Zurich to New York or even Los Angeles. Again, this is maybe not 100% right. I mean, there are some technologies such as sustainable aviation fuels. 
But then these technologies are available, but they're so much more expensive, like 600 times the cost of conventional kerosene. Here, we need really technology, big technological steps to really create these technologies and make them market ready. And this won't appear by itself somehow naturally, but we need to create a regulatory environment that makes investment in these new technologies and technological advancements safer and incentivize them, for example, by proposing a really carbon tax trajectory that people take seriously or other regulatory environments where investors or inventors can really be certain that if they invest a lot of energy in these sometimes niche technologies, sometimes not so niche technologies and develop them further, that it will pay off and it will be a good investment. If I may compliment that, this was really a very excellent summary. Perhaps one area that I would emphasize is also important for innovation is energy storage. Since we have intermittent renewable sources of energy and we are really getting very good at harvesting these. But the problem with intermittent energy is that we don't necessarily get these energies when we need them. So storing energy would be really quite crucial. And that's where there's a lot of R&D, there is some uh, development, but certainly much more is needed if we can. And another area which, where I think Sebastian really summarized it really well, where, where we really need more innovation is not necessarily individual gadgets, individual technologies, but more systems innovations. For example, in dispatching, so how to handle the whole electricity system, which is all based on intermittent renewables. I think in the era of big data and artificial intelligence, we, we will crack this nut, but we are still not fully there. And we certainly still have to learn in how to better manage more and more dispersed and small-scale production of energy because many consumers are becoming actually prosumers. They also want to produce their own energy and not only consume. So many, many small and very different energy producers rather than a couple of mega power plants and also the energy demand. So we have to get better at how to match these two. But I think we will be able to crack this that. And certainly, of course, it would be great to find more ways to capture carbon and uh, store carbon, but in ways that don't come with the major ecological and other risks that presently available or presently known technologies, unfortunately, do have many concerns, especially deployed at large scale. So there, certainly more R&D is also very helpful. Thank you very much. It seems like climate crisis is a crisis where we need a combination of different aspects of human life. Like you need social sciences, good policy initiative, technology initiatives. It's a challenge for humanity altogether. Moving from uh, this part, we already talked about economics and climate crisis, which is a heated topic all the time because carbon emission, greenhouse emission is very, very closely associated with the industrial production, not just in Europe, but overall uh, in the world. How does Europe see itself in the future? How can it be economically relevant? while achieving its uh, climate goals. Thank you. That's uh, that's a really excellent question that I think many of us uh, uh, have in their own minds and, and want to get answers for ourselves. And I guess the answer will be different if you ask different experts. And from my work in the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change and seeing the different scenarios and the different pathways through which we can actually meet climate neutrality targets, my conviction is that there shouldn't be a compromise at all. In fact, you mentioned earlier investments. I think any investment in the end will bring growth. 
it doesn't matter if it's in green technology and if it's in, into renewable energy or it's energy efficiency. This is equally good for the economy than if it was invested in, uh, let's say, construction or what, whatever we want uh, to invest in. In fact, perhaps it will create better jobs and, and different types of growth. So I don't think we really need to give up anything if we do this smart. Of course, a lot of investment has to go simply into negative emissions technologies. That's not necessary because those technologies don't really have any other purpose than fighting climate change, which means that we have to have someone pay for them. So in that case, that money does go away from something else where otherwise it would have a productive use elsewhere. But if we choose scenarios and pathways in which we focus on energy efficiency if in which we focus on clean energy generation and it is social innovation, business innovation, then I don't think there is compromise between economic growth and climate change. If we choose scenarios where we bank a lot on carbon dioxide removal and negative emissions, I think there is much more compromise between well-being and economic prosperity. I agree. Well, I think this was a great summary. If I may add something... For me, sometimes the question between economic growth and climate protection is a double-edged sword. Because on the one side, it's sometimes used to play down climate protection in favor of economic growth. For example, if people perceive that there's a limited number of resources that you can only spend, and you can only spend it on social issues, housing, social care, or distant environmental protection. And sometimes also, especially from conservative points, there's a big argument in Germany that people said, oh, we cannot invest too much on climate protection because otherwise we will become poor and nobody will follow our example. So we have to keep the climate protection smaller so we will grow enough. But the other argument is sometimes also a bit tricky because I think for me sometimes people say climate protection is always a good investment in the future. It's easy that sometimes we perceive that this is the only way to go forward and we can only do climate protection if it's a good investment economically in the short term. And sometimes this hides the cost that we may now have to invest. And for me, the really important word that Diana also said is about investment. We have to acknowledge that climate change is an intertemporal problem that we now use fossil fuels that have extreme costs in the future. And what we have to do now is we have to invest a lot in this transition. And yeah, it may be cheaper in the short term if we continue to use coal and, and other fossil fuels, but in the long term it will be much more costly. So we have to acknowledge now that we now have to spend a bit more cost to make this transition and not all of the investments will play off in five or ten years. But if we look in a longer scale, maybe in 15, 20 years, a lot of, of it will play off and not only in the avoidance of climate change impacts, but also in other things of technological advancements and energy efficiency. And there's a lot of side effects on local air pollution that we're going to solve with climate change mitigation. To put it in one sentence, it's, knowledge, it's important to acknowledge that we have short-term economic costs, but the benefits that we reap in the long term will be much more abundant. Thank you very much. So climate crisis doesn't depend on one continent, on one country. It has to be a coordinated effort and also to be economically viable for Europe to compete with other countries which are using coal, which are using fossil fuels, which is much more cheaper. One of the also other bigger issue is EU just doesn't have to focus on its internal actions for climate crisis, but it also needs to coordinate with other countries like China, America, India, other all developing countries. What is EU has been doing so far to diplomatically make sure that other countries are also reaching the targets? Because if other 
other countries are not reaching, we're not reaching the targets, then everyone is doomed. As much as it is internal uh, policy initiatives are important, we it is also necessary to get everyone on board so that we are safe in the coming future. Professor Diana? These are more delicate questions. First, it's true that everybody is responsible for this and we have to solve this globally. But at the same time, I think it's really important to emphasize that the poor half of the globe emits only 7% of total emissions. And the top 10% emits over half of total emissions. In a way, yes, it's important that others also meet. On the other hand, maybe some countries, we should just for now leave them alone and let them just develop. Of course, it's very important that we help them on a pathway which doesn't lock them into a high emissions future. So help them develop in a way in which they can go on a net zero pathway fairly soon. We can only be climate neutral if in the end uh, they also become climate neutral. Nevertheless, it's really mostly our responsibility. And I think the best way to tackle this rather than policing others is really setting a good example. If even many EU countries don't meet their targets, and if this is still not really complying with global 2050 climate neutrality goals, then it's hard to tell others that, hey, you should also do your share. The 2030 target of the EU is now much more compatible with that. But becoming climate neutral for the EU in 2050 is too late. Because if the world needs to be climate neutral in 2050, it means that we do have to allow some of the poorer countries to still develop longer, so they will have to be able to emit a bit longer. That means that the most developed ones, and especially those who are the most responsible for these emissions, should actually decarbonize sooner. So one thing that we can do is actually pay, because there are tremendous commitments of different climate funds, also from EU countries. And for example, the Copenhagen Accords promised a huge amount for developing countries. Most of these pledges are made at the different climate summits. But very little of these actually do materialize. While we can't just expect others if we don't meet our own goals, and finance is clearly a very important part of the whole deal. So I think we are better able to expect others to also meet their targets if we are meeting ours and also making our commitments on the financing part. With regard to other major emitters as the US and, and China and others, I think the EU is doing well in terms of the diplomacy. And the big question, of course, will be really India. I think India is the most challenging from the perspective that that's where enormous emissions growth is expected in the next few decades. Also, they are perhaps the least ambitious in terms of meeting climate targets, while China very much recognizes this and also has kind of became among uh, the climate leaders right now. Also, from some sense, they have a bit easier in a centrally planned economy. If they set a target to close coal power plants, they will close power plants, coal power plants. So it's really what they decide to which route uh, to go down to. Other countries are a bit more challenging, and I see India as the most challenging, also from a diplomatic perspective. And the most challenging, I find, is some of the oil exporting countries. So Saudi Arabia and others clearly have major issues with this whole climate agenda. I don't see that we are doing enough with this region. We are very much treating them, well, you know, that's your fault, so you just solve it. But no, it's not going to be that easy at all, because if that region collapses, then it's going to 
to have an effect on the whole world. So I think we definitely would need much stronger diplomacy with the major oil exporting countries and much more innovative uh, solutions to help them solve their very significant challenges to suddenly having to change their whole economies into very different and those who are very addicted to certain lifestyles and certain uh, ways of the economy and suddenly having to do something very different. This is not easy and I think it would be very important for EU to collaborate in this challenge uh, much more. I completely agree and uh, with all the points uh, that Diana said. If I may, I would just add three small specific points. And the first one is that regarding international cooperation, it seems that the EU is now changing a bit the way it trades with other countries and the way carbon emissions play a role in trade. Because before, Europe really divided its ambitions in industries that were not trade-exposed, not energy-intense industries that were trade-exposed and energy-intense. And a lot of industries of steel and cement that were really energy-intense and trade-exposed, they were exempted from from really strong climate policy, for example, from buying EU certificates to um, to still uphold trade and kind of protect those industries. Now Europe is thinking about changing that. It's now thinking about introducing something like a carbon border adjustment mechanism from 2026 on. And during that time, it will slowly phase out the free allocation of certificate to those trade-exposed industries. And this may have also really big effects on international cooperation and also climate diplomacy, because from now on, other countries want to export to the EU may have to buy certificates. And this also opens a um, certain channel for diplomacy where you can say, okay, maybe it's good for you if your country has its own climate change mitigation mechanism, your own carbon tax, your own ETS, and then maybe we'll exempt you from our carbon border adjustment mechanisms. And it's well actually good for countries because then they wouldn't have to pay their carbon taxes to Europe, but then collect them by itself. So I think this could be an interesting way of diplomacy for other developing countries to incentivize them to get on with uh, serious climate change. This will, as Diana excellently put out, not be appropriate always for more developing countries, for which it is sometimes really difficult to even set up something like an emissions trading scheme. And here I totally agree that financial transfers are important and also maybe technology transform of uh, net zero technologies and also capacity building that I think is really important to allow these countries to set up to some really complex instruments like emission trading systems, renewable freedom tariffs to make those countries able to, to set up this regulation. And maybe one last point that came to my mind is when Jana spoke to these oil exporting countries. I think this is also really tough not to crack because in a lot of these countries, especially in Central Asia or in the Middle East, climate change is not a really important political agenda. A lot of these countries are really close, sometimes authoritarian, and climate change concern in those countries ranks much below global average. And here, I think Europe can also play an important role, not only so much in maybe international negotiations, but also on subnational engagement, for example, supporting journalists, supporting NGOs and civil society, and to just help those groups to put the agenda on climate change more on the political agenda. Thank you very much. That was a very informative answer for both of you. As we have seen, we've touched upon different parts of climate crisis. We started with technology, then there was policy challenges. We talked about diplomatic challenges. What do you think is the role of civic researchers, like researchers from eight different European universities, in coming up with innovative solutions in supporting the road ahead to mitigate the climate crisis? Professor Diana, let's start with you. 
Thank you. It's crucial that uh, European researchers collaborate, especially it's fantastic to have social scientists collaborate to fight the climate crisis because for a long time, climate change was meteorology, then it perhaps extended to technologies and the engineering sciences, and then perhaps to economic sciences. But it's only recent that social sciences are more invited to the negotiating table to general have their place in the solution space. And in fact, they are crucial to solving the climate crisis because we see that in where we have the technologies, in where we have been saying already that these are cost effective and don't cost the earth and we can do it, it still hasn't been happening. So clearly the problem is not with technology, not with economics, but it's with why it's not happening. So it's with people, it's with institutions. Institutions, it's with politics. So clearly, from now on, perhaps the most important part of the solution is for social sciences. And as you said very well, we won't be able to solve this, this problem alone. We really need collaboration. We need to understand each other's perspective. For example, we are very much agreeing with Sebastian, but the small differences that we're in the, uh, our positions, I think, did originate from the fact that we are from different regions. So we do have different perspectives on this issue. And that's why it's really important to always integrate in climate science, climate-related scientific research, uh, the diversity perspectives. That's also what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change does because nobody can alone know the ultimate answer because you will definitely ignore some of the nuances based on cultural differences, based on other local political preferences or other perceptions simply. And we can only do this if a wide uh, portfolio of different disciplines collaborate and wide portfolio of, of researchers from different geographical regions. The strong advantage of the Civica network is that it's not only countries, but it's also that uh, usually our universities include researchers not only from these countries, but they are also already, for example, the Central Euro European University is already an extremely diverse university, basically representing almost the entire UN spectrum. So as a result, we can really contribute with this diversity of perspectives. Thank you very much, Dr. Sebastian. It's really hard to add something after this excellent point. Maybe just to sketch a little bit out. I mean, I wouldn't say that now it's a perfect time for only social scientists, but I would say it's not a perfect time for interdisciplinary research. So, for example, if you want to wrap your head around what the perfect policy mix in a certain sector like buildings or transports, obviously you need engineers to know what the effect of these policies is. But you also need economists to think about the interdependencies of certain regulation with each other, where they create synergies, where they create trade-offs. And you need political scientists to think about the political procedures to make it easier or harder to implement the policies and maybe also the effect that these policies have on the political process or public opinion. And maybe you need also sociologists and peer studies people, psychologists, to really understand the public opinion on these policies. So it's really important to get all these voices on board. And I think Civica is a, is a great institution to do that. And I can also only support point that Diana raised, that it's important to get different voices from different regions on board. For example, we did a big survey on red politicians, UNFCCC, and climate change researchers. We found that there are significant differences on what they perceive as important for solving the climate crisis. One interesting point is, for example, that politicians from the UNFCCC that came from the Global South found financial transfer really important, which people that came from the Global North didn't find so important. And I think sometimes these differences are just from different experiences that we have as different researchers. And Civica, I think, as Diana said, can do a great job in bringing together these experiences and making the most out of them by combining them. 
The two experts walked us through the different aspects of the crisis, the policy aspect, the technological aspect, and the diplomatic aspect. To tame the crisis, we need to tackle it from all the sides. The crisis is an incredible challenge that demands our attention immediately. The coming years will tell us how successful we are in managing this crisis that is critical to the existence of humanity. The second season of Over to Europe is produced by me, Aniket Narawan, and edited by Ricardo Colella, Savika Associate at Hutti School, with the help of Savika Community. Music in this episode was created by Kevin McLeod. This podcast is funded by the German Academic Exchange Service. Subscribe and learn more at www.savika.eu/slash Over to Europe. Stay tuned for our next episode.